Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome. We are back after a 167-hour break, I guess. I thought tonight we don't have a guest because I thought maybe we should take a moment to do a retrospective of some of the past shows. And I know we're a little bit early on that kind of thing. But over the last few weeks, we've had some guests that have made some provocative statements. And given that I've received a number of inquiries from various people about things that came up on the program that weren't addressed at that time, I thought this might be an opportunity to do some of that. For example, we did a show about the Socorro UFO landing with Ben Moss and Tony Angelino. Angelino. Sorry about that, Tony. And during that conversation, they mentioned something about pictures. I had heard nothing about pictures associated with this case. I thought that uh, other things were more important. Other things were more important to me, I suppose I should say, and I kind of glossed over the pictures. But people had asked me about that, and it wasn't clear whether there were pictures, a picture, what the pictures might have shown, who took them, and when they were taken. Uh, I asked Ben Moss about that, and he 
didn't answer the questions directly on email, but he sent me a copy of their presentation they had done at the MUFON conference in Orlando, Florida. While I watched that, my questions about the pictures were answered. What I learned is there is a single picture. It was taken by Ray Sanford. It was taken about four months after the UFO sighting. He was taking a picture of the dynamite shed that uh, Lonnie Zamora had talked about as the reason he had given up the chase of the speeder and went toward the direction he did because he was afraid there was a problem with this dynamite shed. I do not understand why, but when Ray took this picture, he didn't notice that there were other things in the sky around it. That I can kind of understand, I suppose I should say. What I don't understand when he got the picture back, he did not see the images in the background on the picture. So there's a single picture. It shows several of the Zamora-type objects, meaning they're oval-shaped objects. One of them has some landing gear extended. One of them was taken about... 0.6 miles from the uh, lens of the camera, so it's a good half mile away. Uh, Stanford has not made the picture public. He says he's going to hang on to it for a long time. I don't know how long. I don't know what's going to prompt him to publish said picture. I'm always worried when we learn that there's a photograph of something and people are hanging on to them. We had the Roswell slides where we had a similar circumstances. There were pictures and nobody wanted to show them to anybody for a three-year period. So we have a picture that was allegedly taken of the Socorro object. It uh, is in the hands of Ray Sanford. And uh, I don't know when we're going to have an opportunity to see it. If it can be validated, if there's been no doctoring of the film, there's been no doctoring of the image, We get to see the actual negative, and this is film taken with a negative as opposed to a digital camera. There are things we can tell from that negative. But at this point, it doesn't seem that Ray is willing to make any of that picture, any of that sort of material available. And I wonder when he finally does produce the picture, if we're going to have an opportunity to uh, take a, a closer look at the negatives and have a proper investigation of it. I suspect we'll just be shown an image of it, and that will pretty much be the end of it, uh, given the way some of these things have gone in the past, not necessarily with Ray Stanford, but with other similar events in the past where we're told something exists, we're eventually given an opportunity to take a look at it, but when we have that opportunity, it doesn't quite pan out. So that answers the questions about the pictures that uh, we mentioned on that program with Ben and Tony. They also talked about the symbol on the uh, craft that Zamora saw and what is the real symbol and what is the fake symbol and all of that sort of thing. Well, I've done some research into that in the couple of weeks that have followed our uh, discussion on that. And I'll have some more to say about that and this whole sordid fare of the symbols. There's not just two, as was sort of alluded to, but there's probably at least a half a dozen and maybe more of those that have been published in various arenas, including the Internet. You can type Socorro symbols into your search engine and get uh, a look at some of those. What we'll do when we come back is examine this in depth and talk about where some of that information can be found. So when we come back, we'll talk about that, and uh, we'll talk about some of the other things that have shown up on the programs in the last uh, few weeks. So we'll be right back. 
This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Gibbs A. Williams, Ph.D., is a practicing psychoanalyst, supervisor, researcher, and author in New York City. Much of his life has been dedicated to understanding nature and the uses of meaningful coincidences or synchronicities. His radical and original non-Jungian, non-mystical, non-magical theory of synchronicities illuminates much of the fog surrounding this challenging and perplexing topic. His ideas and manners are fresh, presented in a style that is both entertaining and highly informative. He is also an expert on crisis intervention, specially focused on violence reduction for the police and citizens, mastering anxiety, frustration, and stress without the use of medication, and effectively preventing and treating heroin addiction. Dr. Williams can be contacted at his email address at gwwilliamsny11 at aol.com or visit his website at www.drgibbswilliams.com. Shamanism is recognized as a method to access the quantum level. Mastery of shamanic skills puts spiritual information and healing power into your hands. Path Home Shamanic Art School, a bonded Colorado certified occupational school, has met rigorous state standards ensuring its director and instructors have the qualifications to teach the shamanic arts. Path Home offers its certification program in blocks of study. Block 1, a five-day intensive, will be held in the beautiful mountain town of Coldale, Colorado, October 13th through 18th, Registration deadline is September 12th. Experience journey trance, power animals, helping spirits, sacred space, and life purpose. Come discover your power. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, in the magical world of shamanism. Call 303-775-3431 or visit findyourpathhome.com. As promised, I am back with the retrospective show. I kind of laugh about that because... You know, it's basically a monologue of me talking about these things for the next uh, several minutes. When we broke away, I had mentioned the Roswell symbols. These are the uh, this is the thing that uh, the, the sign that Lonnie Zamora saw in the body of this craft that he saw. And what uh, what's come out is that there is supposedly a number of these things that have been circulating in the internet. There was one that shows an inverted V with three lines through it, which is supposedly to be the authentic symbol. There's another one that shows a, sort of an arrowhead, which is an inverted V with a line in it and an umbrella over it and a line underneath it, which is supposedly the inaccurate symbol. And what we've, what I've learned in the last uh, few weeks, uh, according to the Project Blue Book files, and there's a thick 
thick file of this case in the Project Blue Book files, and these can be access, uh, accessed on the Internet, of course, in a number of different places. But according to the information that was given out by Ben and Tony and information that I found elsewhere, supposedly in July of nine, or, sorry, July, April 24th of 1964, Zamora talked to an officer, an army officer named Richard Holder. And Holder told him in the hours, just the hours after this event took place, Holder being stationed at the Wide Sands Missile Range, so he's close to Socorro, and was one of the people that was brought forward. I think actually he lived in Socorro. And one of the police officers called him about this sort of We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast, but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. So Holder went out there and he talked to Zamora. He interviewed Zamora. And he told Zamora two things. He told him one is not to mention the creatures that he saw. Uh, because that's going to make him look bad like a lunatic, given the nature of ufology in 1964. And the other thing was not to tell the real symbol, because they could use this for the copycats. If somebody came forward and says, yes, I saw something similar to this, and this is what the symbol looked like, they, would, they could tell whether or not it was true, because they knew what the real symbol looked like. In the Project Blue Book files, what we have is the image, the umbrella over the arrowhead image, signed by Lonnie Zamora. There's writing on it, by somebody else or printing on it by somebody else and it's been used to kind of disqualify it as the real symbol but I think you know if, if I'm doing this sort of investigation and I've done several of these that I've got a drawing from somebody I may write on it myself what it shows and then ask the person to sign it to prove that they actually had given me that image and I think that may be what happened here if you go through the Project Blue Book files, you can find three different symbols that are given, the, the arrowhead under the umbrella. There's something that uh, J.L. and Hynek drew, and Ray Sanford made a big deal about finding this letter in the National Archives in 2013 with the symbol that Hynek drew in it. But this is a letter that's in the Project Blue Book files, so it was there for anybody to see who had bothered to read the entire Project Blue Book file. And what that shows is the inverted V with a line above the V and two lines between the legs of the V. So it's not the symbol, the real symbol, as we've been told uh, it is. So we, we need to remember that, even though they're, they're using it to, to prove, prove that sort of thing. And then there's another symbol that's embedded in a letter or... Um, yeah, it's a letter or a report to a superior officer that's very, very difficult to see. But the real symbol, for some reason, is not in the Project Blue Book files. And that makes me wonder about that simply because if I'm the investigating officer, I know this is going to be classified. In uh, 1964, with Project Blue Book, if there was no explanation for a sighting, it was classified. It was secret. If there was an explanation, 
then they were supposed to tell the news media everything they knew about the case because there's a logical explanation. If they didn't know, they refused to talk about it. So we have the Project Blue Book files, which were created in secrecy, you might say. They're not transparent. And the people involved in creating these files and writing these letters and writing these documents and writing the reports all knew that this case would be classified. I do not understand why in that document there is nothing to tell us that the symbol that Lonnie Zamora signed is a fake symbol. There's nothing to suggest that this umbrella with the arrowhead is faked, and they did it for this reason. If you look at the APRO Bulletin, APRO being the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, and it was started by Coral Lorenzen in 1952, and she and her husband were the directors of it. He was the international director. And Coral had some other position. I'm not sure exactly what she was. She basically ran the organization. They lived in Tucson at the time. I mistakenly said on my blog, um, which is kevinrandall.blogspot.com, when I was recounting some of this, that I thought they lived in Alamogordo. They had moved from Alamogordo to Tucson by 1964. They got there two days later. This took place, the sighting took place on a Friday evening. They got there and talked to Zamora on Sunday. So it's two days later. Holders had a chance to talk to him. The FBI guy who showed up and was telling everybody not to mention that he was there because the FBI doesn't investigate UFO sightings and talking to the state police and all these other people. They had an opportunity to talk to Zamora. They talked to him at the police station. They were getting cooperation from the um, Socorro police, and apparently there was um, state police involved. And now by that point, the Air Force had a representative there. And by, by the Air Force, I mean Project Blue Book, uh, Sergeant Moody. And uh, Cole relates something that I think I think is kind of interesting, that, that um, Sergeant Chavez, who was a confidant of Zamora, had taken a prisoner off somewhere else, and they were left in the office with Zamora and some others, and Zamora was ready to, to talk to him, and, and so uh, Jim Lorenzen went off to fight him, and he found in the hallway um, uh, Moody talking to someone else, and I forget who it is. And Moody was talking about Cora Lorenzen saying, well, she's a nut. You don't want to listen to anything she has to say. She's just really out there. Not realizing she's saying, he's saying this in front of Jim Lorenzen. And he introduced himself again saying, I'm Jim Lorenzen, Coral's husband. So he was kind of embarrassed about that. But the point is, they're in the police station. They're there with the official Blue Book representative. They're there with the state police. They're there with the um, – uh, uh, Socorro police and the FBI and the range officers from, from White Sands. Zamora is talking to them about this and he mentions the the alien bodies again, or the, not the bodies, but the alien creatures. And at this point, he's now kind of backing off from that. He's saying, well, I didn't really see people. I didn't really see um humanoids, I saw sort of white coveralls, and I'm not sure if they were floating in the air or what it was, but he'd been advised not to talk about the aliens. So he's backed off of that, and I think Ben and Tony both said, well, Zamora said he didn't see people. If you go back and you listen to what he said in the earlier reports, if you listen to what the Jim and Carl Lorenzen reports in the April Bulletin for May of 1964, he mentions this sort of thing, and he talks a little bit about that. But the one thing they pressed him on was the symbol. And he wouldn't talk about that. He, he just wouldn't tell him what it was. In the APRA Bulletin for 1964, you see the representative of the umbrella with the arrowhead on it. But there's another one in there as well that doesn't really look like any of the other symbols that have been talked about. So we have that going on. We find 
um, Zamora statements to the uh, Hispanic press. He gave a statement in Spanish, and he talked about there being three, uh, an inverted V and three um, bars underneath it. Not through it, as we've been led to believe, but he's actually saying underneath it. And I think that when we're looking at the words, we need to look at these words carefully and what he says. And when we look at these discussions that people say prove that it's the inverted V with the three bars through it, that's really not what he's saying. It's not what's being said. It can be interpreted in very ways. One of them was that uh, there was an inverted V with three bars underneath it. Well, you can say that the three bars were painted on the, the craft and the V was point, painted painted over them, which gives you the three bars underneath the V, but you can also look at it that they're underneath it. They're below the V. So it's kind of confusing on that. So when we get down to it, we have all of these different symbols. I think, based on the Project Blue Book files, and I can see nothing to dissuade me from this, that the true symbol really is the umbrella with the, the uh, arrowhead shape in it. Because that's the one that Lonnie Zamora signed. That's the one that's in the Project Blue Bluff files, which was classified. The other representations that I can find, the news stories that I can find, and, and Tony and Ben both talked about there being at least four newspaper stories. I found additional ones as well that talked about this, giving a description of this symbol. But the description is open to interpretation. Uh, they, they use, as I said, the Hynek symbol with the inverted V with one bar above the point of the V and two bars between the legs, which does not show that or is not a good representation of that. So I find nothing in the files that suggests that's the proper one. I could be wrong. I know that um, uh, Ray Sanford has said that's, that's the authentic symbol. I have heard from others who talked to Mrs. Zamora in the years that followed um, prior to Lonnie's death being told that the proper symbol is, in fact, the one with the umbrella of, over it. And the question then becomes, was she sticking with the story that had been told by her husband because he had been told not to talk about what it really was? Or was she giving us a clue as to what, it really, what the symbol really was? So I look at all of that stuff. Um, there's discussion about this, a lot of discussion about this over on the uh, UFO Conjectures blog run by Rich Reynolds. And if you type UFO Conjectures into your search engine, you'll come up with his blog. And then you type um, Socorro or Socorro Symbols into the search engine on the blog, and you'll have an opportunity to, to read some of the things that he's posted about that, especially uh, what he's learned over the years about it. There is um, other discussions about it that suggest other symbols are the accurate one. So I'm not sure that we're ever going to be able to solve this problem simply because Lonnie Zamora has died. Lonnie Zamora is the only one who ever saw the symbols. He may have drawn them precisely for Captain Holder, he may have drawn them precisely for G. Allen Hynek. He may have drawn them precisely for Ray Sanford. But when we look at the documentation, what we see is that what he drew or what it was interpreted by these other people doesn't exactly match one another. If, for example, he had said the same thing to Holder, he had said the same thing in the newspapers and it was clear, and he had drawn specifically that sort of thing and, and uh, the, the inverted B with the three bars through it, and that appeared in the Project Blue Book files, I would be on board with that. 
but the only symbol that he signed is the one that uh, we see in the Project Blue Book files. And until I hear better evidence, and I know Ben and Tony do not agree with me, but until I personally hear better evidence, that's the symbol I'm going to think as the real one because it was classified. That symbol, though, has been published many, many times in many, many different publications. So the idea of keeping it private so that you could determine who had really seen the symbol, that kind of flies out the window at that point. So it's kind of a conundrum on that. I think at this point we've pretty well exhausted the discussion of the Roswell, I'm sorry, the Socorro symbol. And the reason I say Roswell is I'm thinking to the next segment, which I want to do, which is about the Roswell slides, because we've had uh, Don Schmidt on the program talking about that. Rob McConnell has had Tom Carey on his program talking about that. Stan Friedman has kind of chimed in on part of that. And I think we'll have an opportunity to resolve some of these issues by what we've learned since those discussions have taken place and get a little bit better idea. You can find a great deal about the Roswell symbols in my book, Roswell in the 21st Century, which is available all over the place, but there's a long section on that I think lays out the case and all its minutiae. So when we come back, we'll take a look at the Roswell slides or we'll discuss the Roswell slides. Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Texting privacy policy and terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. And see if we can't come to some sort of Did 
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exome Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exome Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7-365. Wouldn't you love to know the secret to everything? Well then, meet Dr. Kimberly McGeorge and her cutting-edge breakthrough knowledge that combines science with possibility. Dr. Kimberly brings real-life answers and healing to those open to alternative solutions. She teaches solution-based programs and classes that will change all areas of your life forever. Specializing in conscious creation, intuitive readings, and energy medicine, you can rapidly shift health, relationships, business, and money and abundance challenges quickly. Receive her best-selling book, Secret to Everything, at no cost by going to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone. That's right. Transformation can start now. Just go to secrettoeverything.com forward slash xzone and receive Dr. Kimberly's book for free. While science pursues fact, magic accesses the quantum level, bridging random facts to form truth. As long as science and magic remain separate and polarized, the truth cannot be known. I'm Gwilda Wiecka. Join me on the Science of Magic radio program, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. During each episode, I'll be speaking with experienced and respected scientists and mystics. From astrologers to astronomers, from medical doctors to shaman, the scientific method to dowsing and intuition, we'll weave together information from seemingly divergent practices to promote unity and enlightenment. Join me, Gwilda Wiyaka, and the Science of Magic right here on the Mutual Broadcast Network. For more information, visit www.thescienceofmagic.net. I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, founder, president of a new cancer foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com.
And we are back from our long discussion of the symbols that Lonnie Zamora saw on his craft in Socorro, New Mexico. Before we took the break, I mentioned that we would talk about the Roswell slides, and I mentioned my book, uh, Roswell in the 21st Century. And the one thing that kind of annoys me about that, I mean, mentioning my own book repeatedly, you know, you know it sort of makes it commercial, but I think of uh, the example set by Bill O'Reilly, and I don't mean to suggest that I follow his political conventions at all, but he does a wonderful job of promoting his books on the air. And I'm thinking that if I had an hour every night... Uh, I would have best-selling books as well. But we have uh, now moved to the Roswell Slides, which do a, a segment does appear in the, in the Roswell in the 21st Century, which is available on Amazon and I think Barnes & Noble and other fine bookstores and book purveyors throughout the entire free world. This whole thing, as I think most of you know, began when... Someone approached Tom Carey and mentioned that he had slides that he believed might be of an alien creature. I'm not sure why he looked at the slides and thought alien creature, but that's apparently what he did. According to what Tom told Rob McConnell, that a guy named Joe Beeson had called him and said that um, he had the slides. He had talked to Stan Friedman first, and Friedman said, uh, no, he didn't have time and to talk to Tom Carey. This struck me as odd, simply because I could not imagine Stan Friedman being offered what could be the smoking gun for Roswell. Pictures of the actual alien bodies would say, oh, I'm too busy to deal with that, and palm it off on somebody else. Uh, this is what Tom said, though. Tom had said this. When, when Rob spoke to Stan on the air, Stan said, no, he hadn't got a call from Beeson. Well, that means somebody is not telling the truth here. I believe Stan. I think Stan is telling us the truth here because, as I said, I can't believe that he would have given up the opportunity to see the slides. And I believe Tom Carey. I, think, I don't think Tom Carey would make up a story like that. There's no point in it. I think it was something that Joe Beeson suggested to Tom Carey about the slides to kind of give them a little bit of cachet, a little bit of uh, gravitas, as the political pundits like to say, a little bit of um, credibility. The problem is... Beeson claims he knew nothing about Roswell, he knew nothing about UFOs, and yet he calls Stan Friedman to get a reading on this. I'm thinking if I'm Joe Beeson and I have this slide I think is an alien, I'm looking for an organization. Maybe Stan's name comes up, maybe it doesn't. Maybe Tom Carey's name comes up, maybe it doesn't. So I just uh, find that part of the slide story to be incomprehensible and probably untrue and I'm giving my opinion who I think is telling the truth on that one. So anyway, they get the slides. They engage in a three-year-long investigation of it. They don't want to reveal the slides. They've signed non-disclosure agreements. Somehow the information gets out that their slides exist. Once again, I believe it's uh, Beeson who is the culprit behind that. Although about a year into the investigation, another fellow, Adam Dew, uh, shows up, and he's apparently a pal of Beeson, and they're working in concert uh, to to exploit the slides. And I, I guess that's the right word, because originally people were talking about they were trying to figure out who to sell the slides to, how to make some money off these things. So, you know, they're culprits in, in this um, investigation. So anyway, they're... Uh, 
trying to determine what the slides show, but they don't want anybody to tell them. And as I mentioned, this information gets out. I think it's Beeson or Dew who actually uh, perpetrated this. Nick Redfern, a friend of mine, another UFO investigator who's written many, many books on UFOs and is challenging me and Brad Steiger for the lead of the person in the United States who's written the most UFO books, and he's making a real run at it, uh, heard about the slides and talked to Tony Brigalia about it. And Tony was supposedly surprised that Redfern knew so much about it. He knew the names of the people who'd taken the slides, um, um, Bernard and Hilda Ray, and things like that. So I think I think it's Beeson and Dew who did this as a way of generating interest in this thing because it's two years before anything really shows up after that point. So there's a lot of discussion about the slides, what they are. Um, they were found in a, a box with other slides that are from the 1940s. They did an investigation to prove that the slides were taken in the 1940s. I have no quarrel with that. Apparently, Dew took them to Kodak, and Kodak's experts looked at them and said the emulsion was proper for the time, the composition of the film stock was proper for the time, the mounts were proper for the time. They couldn't tell you exactly when they were uh, taken, but they could tell you it's proper for the late 1940s. The story came out that um, there's a coating on the slides, and it was the, I think it's the triangle and square, which proved it was from 1947. The Kodachrome film didn't exist in 1927. Kodak recycled their slide codes every 20 years, and of course, 1967 was too late. The problem is, when we finally got a look at the slide, I had asked Du at one point about that, having taken them out of the mount, because I thought if you take them out of the mount, you've kind of destroyed the uh, chain of evidence there. But he said he'd only taken one out of the mount. Well, the one he took out of the mount had no coating on it. So I don't know where he got the idea. The other thing is, Kodak uh, film stock, 35 millimeter film stock, for motion pictures, had the triangle and the square on it for 1947. The 35-millimeter slide stock had different coatings. So somebody had learned from the alien autopsy, this nonsensical film that appeared in the mid-1990s, when all there was this, all this discussion about the film stock and the coating on the sides and all of that that we all learned, had, had seen that discussion and hadn't realized that the coating for the 35-millimeter slide film was was different. But Tom, Tom is the one that said Beeson, I think, was told him about the coding. Well, that's just simply inaccurate. And that, of course, had they been conferring with me, would have raised a red flag because I'd have told him, you know, that's not the right code for the, uh, for the slide film. But they continued their investigation. There were other red flags that went up that they just simply ignored. And we've talked about that in the past with others, eventually culminating in this um, presentation in Mexico City, the Be Witness Project uh, with Jaime Musan. Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, and uh, Richard Doland, and some experts in anthropology and medicine there on the stage explaining why this couldn't be a human body. The problem is there was a, a placard on the slides that just simply couldn't be read. You could see there was writing on it. I think David Rudiak, who has done an awful lot of work on the Ramey memo trying to decode that, had suggested it might be script because of the way it looked in the copy of the slide that they had given him or the copy of the scan of the placard they had given him, it looked like um, it was script. It turns out that was motion of the camera. 
so that when they were eventually able to deblur the slide, they could see that it was block lettering. I know that Tom Carey falls back on this idea that, well, they said it was script originally, but it's not. Well, it wasn't script. That was an impression given by the way the thing looked uh, when, when David Rudiak got it. There were other red flags that, that should have arisen. They, I asked Tom Carey in December of, of 2015, prior to the Be Witness program, some six months before, if it could be a mummy. I was trying to figure out if it's not a real alien creature, what could it possibly be? I had gone through an awful lot of um, books and websites, internet sites, looking for representations of alien creatures in the movies. They um, simply didn't exist. When you had an alien in that time frame in the movies, it was normally a human dressed in bizarre clothing or with a little makeup here and there, but they were basically humans. So that didn't work out. Science fiction magazines, they had all kinds of strange alien creatures, but you don't get a photograph of that. The only thing I could think of that it could possibly be was a mummy. And I asked Tom that, and he said, no, it's not a mummy. He said, we've looked at 500 images and we can't find it. I'm thinking, are they looking for the specific image or are they looking for a representation of what mummies look like in general? Apparently, they were looking for the specific one and couldn't find it. Anyway, after the Be Witness program aired or was presented, a high-resolution scan was put up on Adam Dew's website. A number of people who had... Uh, congregated together and called themselves the Roswell Slides Research Group, spent um, nearly 48 hours with that scan, and they were able to deblur it and discover that it was, in fact, a mummy. Tom Carey, for some reason, does not accept that. He says, yeah, it looks like, a, like the mummy that uh, it looks like the image on the slides, but it's not our guy. He kept saying it's not our guy. I'm saying it is their guy. I don't know why Tom clings to this idea that it has not been identified, but he clings to that idea. I understand, Tom. I, I know that he really, truly believes that Roswell was an alien spacecraft crash. He really wants to find the documentation, the smoking gun that proved it, and I, he had that in his hand, he thought. So I, I understand his bias in looking at that, but I think the problem here is, and which we didn't really discuss, is the secrecy around it. They held on to the thing for three years and weren't giving out good copies of it, so that people who had the expertise beyond uh, them might have been able to solve part of the problem. There's also the story going around, and Tom sort of alluded to it, that they had shown or attempted to show one of the slides to American anthropologists, and the American anthropologists wouldn't look at it. But if you listen to what Tom says during his interview with Rob McConnell, what, what comes up later is that, yes, they did show it to American anthropologists, but the American anthropologists would not comment on the record. They wanted more information. They wanted to know the provenance of the slides. Well, it was Ray and, and Hilda Blair who took it, but we don't know where and we don't know when. So there really was no provenance for it. They couldn't provide information that would have allowed the American anthropologist to make some kind of 
judgment. And all that Tom was showing him, according to what he said to, to, to Rob, was he had the um, screen grab that had made, been made for the Kodachrome trailer. There was a, a picture of the image on a computer screen at an angle, and somebody saw it had not been properly blurred, and they were able to capture that. That's what Tom was showing around. So it's no wonder the American anthropologist wouldn't um, comment on it. Once they had the higher quality scans, Philip Mantle, a British researcher, showed it to a large number of anthropologists in a variety of museums around the world, and they all commented on it saying this is a mummy. They weren't sure what, where it was mummified, if it was Egypt, if it was Central America, if it was Peru, but they, they all said it was a mummy. So the Roswell slides have been pretty well identified. I'm going to make a few additional comments about that when we come back. I was going to talk a little bit about the abductions that we talked about with Carol Rainey, but I want to continue on a few more points on the Roswell slides because I think this has been answered. As I say, I cover this in detail in Roswell in the 21st century for those of you who want to get into all the minutia of what's going on, and you can take a look at my blog. Again, type Roswell slides into it, and it's uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You can take a look at additional information through uh, Rich Reynolds' UFO Conjectures blog that will provide you that sort of information as well. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the Roswell slides and in the last few minutes, see if we can't uh, straighten out some of the abductions. I'll be back right after this, so stick around. As host of Dialogue with Divinity, I am thrilled to join the Exxon Broadcast Network and their growing number of affiliates. My quest for a connection to the divine ignited my successful career path as an international spiritual counselor for over 40 years, an author of four books, and well-known metaphysical educator. My clients call me their spiritual mama. So my job is to offer you a radio show to help you grow spiritually with wisdom and get specific tools from guests who are experts in their field. Tune into Dialogue with Divinity and be part of the conversation with Spirit. My goal, your happy soul. For more information, please visit my website at johannacarroll.com. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, High Tech with Corey Kay, and every minute of the 24-7, 365 programming of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 712-432-9459, courtesy of TalkStream Live. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 712-432-9459 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 712-432-9459 for the best of paranormal, new age, thought-provoking, sci-fi radio programming 24-7, 365.
Coming soon to the Exxon Broadcast Network is a different perspective with me, Kevin Randall, as your host. We'll be taking a close look at what is happening in the world of UFOs today with side trips into the paranormal. Guests will range from those who are household names to those who have a different perspective on a variety of topics. No topic will be taboo, but there will be tough questions asked as we all search for the truth about UFOs, the paranormal, and those things that excite us. Sometimes we'll agree with a guest and sometimes we won't, but we'll try to keep the program topical. For those of you who would like to read, be sure to visit www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and remember to listen to the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at www.xzbn.net. This is Kevin Randall. For nearly 30 years, I have been investigating the case of the Roswell UFO. I have interviewed hundreds of people and stood on the crash site. Now in Roswell in the 21st century, I have reviewed dozens of hours of audio and videotaped interviews, examined hundreds of files that relate to the crash, and have returned to Roswell in an attempt to put all that information into the proper perspective. For the first time in Roswell in the 21st century, I have made a dispassionate reevaluation of all that material and provide a new look at what happened. This is a book that clears away all the clutter that has hidden the truth for so long, strips away the various lies that surround the case, exposes the Air Force attempts at cover-up, and found a core of solid information that tells us all where the case stands today. Roswell in the 21st Century will be available in just a few weeks. For more information, please visit my website at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. What Happened in Benghazi is revealed by Nicholas Genix, author of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. He informs the American people that President Obama deceived them by advocating a strong foreign policy prior to the 2012 presidential election, and Hillary Clinton supported this deception. As the title infers, there is a connection between Obama, Islam, and Benghazi. Ample evidence informs Americans that Obama's early indoctrination in the Quran developed an infinity for Islam, why the Quran is the source of discontent in many countries, and why the Obama foreign policy deception led to poor military action and caused the loss of American lives in Benghazi. Genix provides 36 questions for the Select Committee on Benghazi to validate if Americans are justified to mistrust President Obama and Hillary Clinton. An overview of Obama, Islam, and Benghazi is presented on the website www.futureofgodamen.com. That's www.futureofgodamen.com. Afterlife expert Roberta Grimes was the first one to say that dying can be fun. Now her best-selling book, The Fun of Dying, is available in stores worldwide. So if you wonder whether death ends life, how it feels to die, or what heaven might be like, The Fun of Dying was written for you. And if you have always been afraid of death, or if you worry that your life has no meaning, let The Fun of Dying ease your fears and bring new meaning to your life. Nothing said in The Fun of Dying is based on the teachings of any religion. Instead, Roberta draws on evidence to explain how death happens, how it feels, and what comes next. A lot of the best death-related evidence was produced in the first half of the 20th century. When it is put together with recent discoveries, it tells a consistent and amazing story. Roberta Grimes blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Her wonderful book, The Fun of Dying, is available on Amazon and at stores worldwide wherever books are sold.
And I am back without a special guest this evening. We're doing kind of a retrospective of some of the shows we've done in the past, uh, seeing if we can't learn a little bit more about some of the items that I know interested uh, you based on the questions I received after the programs aired. When we went away, we were talking about the Roswell slides, and I think the, about the only thing I have left to say about it. I think it's clear to practically everybody in the world who has taken any time to examine this case, whether it's in my book or on the blogs or websites or whatever, that the image on the slide has been identified. It is a poor, unfortunate Native American child who probably died 900 years ago based on the lengthy report that had been prepared once the, um, the mummy had been found in, I think, 1897 in the Mesa Verde area. And I, you know, I always hesitate to, to say anything about it because you feel like we're exploiting that, that poor child. But I think everybody understands what it is. I just am not sure exactly how Tom and Don became so enamored with the slides that they could not see the problems. They didn't have an image. I mean, a, a, a body they could examine. They had slides with a shaky provenance that they couldn't really identify. And when they saw the whole slides, and Tom suggested they had the whole slides from the beginning, when they saw that, you could see the floor of the museum. You could see other exhibits in the museum, and you realized what it was. And in fact, some of the pictures that were found of the of the mummy taken uh, other than by by Hilda and Bernard Ray showed that floor design, showed the mummy, showed the placard. I mean, it's, it's explained. So I don't understand how they were so fooled, nor do I understand uh, why Tom clings to the idea that what is in the slide is not our guy. It clearly is their guy. We also talked to Carol Rainey about uh, abductions and I think she was pretty clear on her feelings about the abductions, and it kind of mirrored conclusions I had reached a number of years ago. In fact, um, I was in Roswell in 1997 for the great um, 50th anniversary celebration, and I had a couple of friends there, Russ Estes and Bill Cohn. Bill Cohn is a clinical psychologist, licensed in the state of California. Russ is a documentarian who has done some, some wonderful work. And so we had uh, we had connected there, and, and they were kind of doing a documentary on on Roswell in the fiftieth. In fact, Carl uh, Flock and I had done a debate, and they had filmed the debate, and they were going to produce a video of this thing. I don't think it ever got done because because Russ uh, um, wasn't wasn't the healthiest of individuals. Although he was a big, huge, robust guy, he had type one diabetes and had to take shots all the time and had trouble with, um, uh, with with his feet. He had been digging in the garden and got some kind of a blister that got infected and they had to take off part of his foot and part of his leg and it, and it just became a, a real ordeal for him. And he died shortly after I got back from Iraq. But we were all in Roswell and we were sitting around, um, I think we we're having breakfast as a matter of fact, and Russ says to Bill, should we tell him and Bill says, yeah. And they began to explain their investigation into abductions. And they were explaining how they had talked to dozens of abductees. 
and how the stories all seem to mesh based on the researcher who had been conducting the uh, hypnotic regression sessions or who had been uh, conducting the investigations. And they said they'd come to the conclusion that abductions, for the most part, had a terrestrial explanation. I wasn't surprised. I'd come to this conclusion a couple of years earlier myself based on my research into abductions. I had thought if there are actual abductions, they would match more closely Barney and Betty Hill or Travis Walton, which seems to be seemed to be abductions by opportunity. They were out in the world. They were driving down dark highways. They were alone. There was an opportunity for an abduction, and that's what happened. It wasn't this long-going longitudinal study that we seemed to get. Well, Carol Rainey, of course, who was married to Bud Hopkins for 10 years, and as she mentioned, the marriage didn't end in a friendly fashion, was talking about um, how Bud Hopkins and the other abduction researchers, and the, the, the big three, which would be John Mack, um, David Jacobs, and Bud Hopkins, and, and of those three, only David Jacobs is still alive. But Mack was killed in an unfortunate traffic accident in, in England, and Bud uh, passed away a number of years ago. But how they, I always, I, I, I thought unconsciously led their subjects into the abduction. And, and the, the thing that, that got me is, you put someone under hypnosis, and the idea is they become very suggestible. They want to please the operator. It's a phenomenon in hypnosis that's well documented in the, uh, the journals now about, about hypnosis, about psychology. And you would hear them say to someone who they thought had been abducted, they're trying to get at the abduction scenario themselves, and the person would say, well, I, I don't remember anymore. I didn't see anything more. And they would say, yes, you can. Think of it as, as, as looking over a wall. Think of it as you're on a crane looking at a movie set. You can see more. And they're busting through these, these walls erected by the alien creatures to block the hypnotic regression. And I thought, you know, what you're doing there is telling the person there's more there. There's something more to be seen. Even if they're telling you there isn't anything more, you're telling them there is, and eventually they come up with a story. I thought this was very, very uh, important to understand that even though they were attempting to be um, unbiased in their research, their bias showed through. And it's something that just really hasn't been addressed. Bill Cohn, Russ Estes, and I did a book called The Abduction Enigma. I think it came out in 1997 or 1998 about this and we explored all of these things we, we explored the past life regressions we explored, explored the satanic ritual abuse a lot of this coming out under therapy under, under the influence of therapists and that sort of thing and we saw a connection of all these things and it looked to us as if there was terrestrial explanations for it one of the big explanations is sleep paralysis and if you study the sleep paralysis literature now you learn that in about 80% of the cases the person who um is undergoing sleep paralysis, who who's has, has sleep paralysis, envisions some kind of a creature or entity in the room with them. 80%. So you could have an episode of sleep paralysis, and all you, all you have is this feeling you cannot move, and there's something in the room with you, and once you break the sleep paralysis, that lasts two or three minutes, and you break the sleep paralysis, everything goes back to normal. 
if you go to an abduction research with this episode of sleep paralysis and you say, I uh, have this abduction scenario, and you get to the point, you say, well, I just saw these creatures in the room, that's all I saw, they're going to keep at you until you give them a full-blown abduction um, scenario. We looked at all of that sort of thing. We looked at six, uh, 316 people. Many of them were the abductees interviewed by Mac and Hopkins and Jacobs and, and other abduction researchers. And we found a number of things that were interesting. We found, and I hesitate to say this because we get criticized for it, that a large number of them were either homosexual or bisexual. Not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but here is something that you can't identify by looking at a person easily, and yet they are overrepresented in the abduction population, which led to the question, are there other examples of this? Left-handedness, for example, and I think Mark Rodiger, who is the scientific director at the Center for Human Studies, said in his short survey of left-handed people, they were overrepresented in the abduction phenomena. I don't know what it means. It's just something that was observed. So we were looking at all those sorts of things. Could there be something else that explains it? How about blood types? Is one blood type overrepresented? How about college education? All of those sorts of things. So we were looking at that, trying to figure out what it meant. And that's what we did the abduction scenario or the abduction enigma. But what we were suggesting was some sort of an answer to part of the problem. It's mostly terrestrial. It doesn't have to do with alien creatures. And if you look at some of the other studies, I mean, the, the things going on with abductions don't make a lot of sense. For example, they're talking about how um, these people, uh, three million Americans have been abducted over a period of time. And you're thinking, well, if it's three million Americans, how many in the rest of the world? Are they just singling out Americans or is it a like number in the rest of the world. And where are they parking all their spacecraft? How come we can't see them? How come there aren't photographs of all of this stuff going on? What we've seen since we published a book 25 years ago or 20 years ago is no, in, no increase in the uh, – or no change in the abduction research. It's the same as it was 20 years ago, people gathering this information, what I think of case studies. So um, that's, you know, that's another thing. You can take a look at the abductions uh, enigma and read it for yourself and decide whether to right or wrong. But please don't tell me there's a lot of typos in it. I know that. I do not know why books are so poorly edited in these days, but they certainly are. So this sort of wraps up my um, recapitulation of some of the shows we've done, some of the uh, questions that have been asked on other shows or other questions that have been asked me since the shows kind of give you an idea of where the research has taken us from that point next week with luck we will have Don Ecker talking about his experiences in the UFO field and uh, if you want more information look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and look at Roswell in the 21st century we will be back next week with Don Ecker and more on the UFO world. Thank you for listening. <laughs>